This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Energy Sense, the IHS Market Podcast, where we discuss all things at the intersection of energy and finance. As always, I have Hill Vading with me here today. Hi, Hill. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Brian. How are you? Pretty good. Although, you know, we don't normally like to schedule things at the end of the... We're, we're <laughs> recording this at the end of the day of a Friday that I think has been particularly exhausting for all of us that are on this call today. So which is probably case in point, which is, I guess, explains why we're recording this so late on a Friday. It was the only time all three of us could figure out when to do it. So needless to say, it's been a long week. It is. I feel uh, fairly whiplashed. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's the closeout of January. So I guess this just speaks to the to the broader sentiment I have on, on January 2021, to be honest. Um, exhausting. Okay, so interesting. Yesterday, uh, I think that it came out a couple of days ago, but I'll be honest, I just got to the news story yesterday. Super Bowl is coming up in a couple of weeks, and I found it interesting to read that Budweiser's pulled out. They're not doing ads. Coke, Pepsi, I think they said Audi as well. Um, all these traditional Super Bowl giant, Super Bowl commercial giants, aren't doing commercials. Budweiser came out, I think, and said that they're doing it because they want to redeploy the funds to help support vaccinations in some capacity. And then, and Coke and Pepsi came out with. You know, when we looked at where we wanted to invest dollars right now, we felt there was greater purpose for it to go elsewhere. And then it's also the first time that there's a home team playing in the Super Bowl because it just so happens that it was going to happen in Tampa Bay and Tampa Bay made it in as of last weekend's game. So who knew that the Super Bowl would be this? You, it was going to be different anyways, because naturally we're in the midst of a pandemic and, and that still exists. Uh, but. Also, it seems like there's going to be a, a little bit of a different feel to the Super Bowl as a whole. I don't know. I'm taking taking these giants of advertising out of Super Bowl commercial set seems pretty big to me. Yeah, and you would think, or at least I would have thought, that people watch TV, right? I mean, if, if, if I'm going to cut my budget on the Super Bowl, the, the TV budget would be the last thing that I cut. Because people may not go to the Super Bowl in Tampa, but they'll watch it on TV. And... <laughs> Why and nobody's anything else to do elsewhere. Yeah. And I've already watched everything on Netflix and Hulu. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm probably going to watch the game. I've literally got nothing else to watch or do. You're all out. <laughs> <laughs> I think, and I don't know, I may try to Google it as we're, as we're talking, but so, so my, my wife is from Tampa or from the Tampa area. Um, and, and Tampa has a big festival every year called Gasparilla, which is some sort of like Mardi Gras-like Tampa Festival that, that might be over Super Bowl weekend, uh, but but it's right around this time every year. I've never been, yeah. but it could be a fun time to be in Tampa, uh, you know, COVID excluded. I was going to say, with, with social distancing, <laughs> these, although, you know, I don't know, different norms in different places these days with respect to um, social distancing and and mask wearing. So I'm not quite sure what the environment is around, around Tampa Bay around that. But um, anyways, there's, there's not many things, as I said, I've, I've run out of, I, I feel like every night I flip through the various streaming services I have to try to find something that I'm interested in watching. And I think I've watched everything. So I, I'm down to looking forward to the Super Bowl. Watching the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I hear the weekend's doing a halftime performance that apparently is longer than ever been done before. So maybe that'll be interesting. Yeah, this is the highlight reel of my social. (laughs) You know, uh, the bottom line is we're we're all very fortunate. Um, But yeah, I could use a a little bit of injection of something new into my um, entertainment at, at this point, I feel. Other than you, uh, you know what, Hill, you you bring me entertainment every single day. Well, we got Kareem. And we got Kareem here. He's one of our all stars. You're right. We have Kareem here. Always entertaining. And and actually, that's a good pivot. Um, Because (laughs) from Tampa Bay to Kareem, from from Tampa Bay and the Super Bowl to to our quarterback here at IHS Market, Kareem Fawaz. <laughs> the top um, radio market. <laughs> that's right. That's who we've got with us today. We're very excited. And as we said, it's been a particularly exhausting week for Kareem because he, he said to be on point tackling with all things, all things related to the oil market. And this morning, he actually had a webinar where he was, we were talking about all these things. And we wanted to have you on to sort of um, delve into some of those topics you know, a little bit more thoroughly, or at least the ones that we wanted to delve into, as opposed to, you know, you have to give the whole spiel in a webinar with includes the base case and stuff. So can we can we talk a little bit about the fact that we're not quite here on a physical recovery point, but oil prices are telling me we are. So what what's happening? Sure. Uh, hey, guys. Thanks for having me on again. Always fun to join. It is. I mean, you kind of you set it up great, in a great way, which is prices over the past couple of months. I mean, since the last time I was on have rallied quite significantly, right? We're up 50% or so uh, on Brent and WTI. If you look at the picture from a physical standpoint on oil, it doesn't look a whole lot better than it did a couple of months ago. COVID is still raging, cases are still rising, demand globally is still pretty subdued. I mean, we're still not back to normal in most of the major markets, particularly Europe and North America. You've had another wave of shutdowns and restrictions. So you're not really at that deliverance point from a physical standpoint, but the markets have moved ahead. And the key reasons for that, and as we think about why that's happened, there's a few catalysts. I mean, you can exp- you can you can guess them probably. The first being that the vaccines have come on, and that and as these vaccines are being rolled out, the market has developed a consensus expectation now that by the second half of this year, demand will be recovering strongly. Life will be going back to the way we we know it pre-COVID, and with it, it'll bring that recovery in oil demand that'll mop up a lot of the excess in the markets. The other assumption and the other factor that's come into play in a big way, and we'll talk a bit more about that today, I suppose, is is really the cycling of money uh, in financial markets back towards commodities and within commodities, the quintessential commodity being oil. And that's been happening across the board from metals to to other commodities, from industrials to oil, and it's kind of really pushed up the overall flow of capital into the into the futures market and into oil in particular, pushing prices higher. And the third factor, I would say, is really what Saudi Arabia did earlier this year by setting a floor on their prices at, at $50 a barrel and, and coming out and cutting production unilaterally goes to say it's basically sending a signal to the market, to the paper markets, that we are here to defend prices, we are here to push prices higher, and we're willing to do it uh, even if it means going alone. And the confluence of those three factors, vaccine, commodity reflation, and Saudi uh, Saudi put, if you want, on prices, all of that together has given the markets enough confidence 
to really act on that anticipation of the second half or whenever that recovery comes that you can start buying into this rally even if it hasn't started yet. And it's really interesting in the sense that for us who do supply demand, I mean, you do it on the gas side, obviously, Rianne and others that look at energy markets. When you're stuck doing it on a supply demand basis, it's hard to see it in a balance. What's the, what's the trigger that pushed you so fast? But that's kind of the magic of oil over the past, I mean, decade or so has been. Once that conviction gets uh, anchored in market expectation, it, it can run and it can run for a while. But then do we run the risk then of paper market getting ahead of the ball on this, right? I mean, it is. I mean, it is getting ahead of the ball. Basically, what it does is it shifts it shifts where the where the pressure is. So when prices increase organically, say on a supply demand basis, progressively as demand recovers, prices start rising, incentivizes a bit more supply on a progressive basis to, to meet that need. That creates an, an organic tightening of the market that's that's constructive on a sustained basis. When prices front run, if you want fundamentals or push ahead of demand, which is what's happening now, basically it's shifting all that pressure instead of prices being the regulator of supply, back to supply being the regulator of itself. And basically that suppliers around the world will have to control their volumes in a way that the recovery plays out the way markets expect. So it's shifting a lot of that pressure from the price to OPEC plus producers on the, you know, Saudi Arabia and Russia in particular, but also a lot of other producers within that group have spare capacity and the US and US producers, which obviously we talk a lot about and how they respond to now an environment that's a lot more attractive uh, in terms of prices and cash flows than it was looking uh, as these companies were going into budget setting season last fall with prices in the low 40s for WTI. Uh, that cash flow inflation that they've seen over the past two months really changes the equation for them in terms of what they can do. And the question is going to be how fast that translates into supply. But together, what I, all of this is to say, Anticipation isn't necessarily a bad thing if the anticipation is anchored in a legitimate trajectory for fundamentals to follow. If you need something to happen for, for that to hold, that's where it gets dicier. And this is where we are now, which is you need supply to be restrained and collectively over the next 18 months for that big recovery markets are expecting and are pricing in at this point to play out. And I guess you flagged it, that Saudi put is critical in that, yeah. at least right now. It is because it's important in the sense that what the Saudi put does is it it adds a layer of deterrence on the short side, effectively, because it, it shows you that there is a, a large producer in the market willing to do what it takes to scare away and to deter any any risk of short of kind of short appetite picking back up if fundamentals start to weaken. So you have that intent. And the, the Saudi oil minister, uh, Abdelaziz bin Salman, has been quite uh, clear in how he fashions himself, which is a la Greenspan in his own words. So you can take that lightly. But at the end of the day, the way he sees his role in managing the market is basically keeping speculators on their toes, keeping the markets uh, on edge. And one way they try to do that is this unilateral cut, which was a surprise and not expected by the market at all. And that's the type of tool he'll continue using, I think, over the next uh, couple of years as they try to push prices higher. I think the bottom line is also from Saudi Arabia that they do they want higher prices. So most of last year, was really dealing with the crisis and the demand crisis, the COVID crisis. Now, as we're looking ahead, they're starting to shift their priorities back to where they were before the COVID crisis hit, which is they need higher prices uh, as soon as possible. And they're going to do whatever they have to do to, to try to make, make that happen. 
Uh, and is the bet that the shale sector has been so disrupted and, and, and paralyzed that, that higher prices are going to not necessarily bait a bunch of rigs back to action? That's one of the bets. So one of the bets is that the demand recovery holds, which obviously uh, you, can, you can't say with certainty at this point. There's more certainty now than there was six months ago with the vaccines rolling out. But you never know just how fast the global economy and the global demand uh, is going to come back. The second, as you said, is that supply now that prices have moved into the mid 50s to mid 60s range don't react strongly. And that the U.S., not just because it's gone through so much, but also because of the pressures that shareholders are putting on companies to divest, to, to, to kind of shift capital away from capex, growth capex budgets and towards returns, lowers the elasticity of supply on the upside. And basically, the, the bet they're making is that even as prices rise into this higher range, U.S. supply growth will remain within a manageable range for them from a physical standpoint. There's a third bet they're making, which we haven't really talked about, we talked about in the past before the Biden election, uh, I remember when we were on, which was this Iran, this potential Iran return. And that's the third bet they're making, which is that the return of Iran over the next couple of years, if it does happen, will be slow and gradual and it won't be a sudden gush that dumps two million barrels a day into the market and kind of uh, floods everything. Uh, so that's a lot of bets. Obviously, there's a lot of that's a lot of exogenous factors that really they don't control. <laughs> they don't control any of them, or at sounds least sounds like a house of cards that you're describing to me. <laughs> somewhat, somewhat. <laughs> and in the past, these types of bets haven't worked out great. Uh, the the only difference, though, the advantage they have this time around, or at least in 2021, and less so next next year, is that demand will be recovering a lot. Obviously, you're coming out of a very deep crisis, so sequentially you will have room in the market to absorb incremental supply even in a messier way probably than they would have liked. But you are seeing, you know, five, six, seven million barrels a day potentially of higher demand uh, over the next 12 to 16 months. That's going to help absorb a lot of that slack. Well, it's interesting because uh, Hill and I had a conversation recently with Michael and Brian, and for podcast listeners, it would have been, I think, the last episode, <laughs> where, where we talked about, um, hard to keep track at this point, where, where we talked about how there has been a rush, obviously, back into the energy space as oil price has gone up, right? And equities have surged alongside oil price. Did this surprise us? Because, I mean, in general, over the last two years, I guess the the conversation is centered around you know defininancialization of oil markets and and that there's been a redirection of traditional market participants away from oil and gas and and back to maybe towards renewables and things of like that and it's not that we haven't seen flows into renewables we we definitely have seen that but what do you think the last yeah. month <clears throat> has taught us with respect to that trend no, I mean, I think it's in, it's been interesting because it shows you again and again, and we've seen it time and time again. After the, every downturn, you have the same thing happen in different in different ways, which is you have as the market crashes, this kind of early belief that money is flowing out of the sector, it might never come back in. This is a long-term downtrend. We saw it in the early years of the 2014-15 downturn. At a certain point, the psychology shifts, and when it does, and it shifted in 2016-2017, money came flowing back in in a big way you had this super this first i would say the the first super cycle narrative come out the loss of investment on the supply side is going to set up you know a super cycle on for commodity prices it didn't really play out the first time around but you've seen that come back into play here uh, again since last fall i think all it goes to show again at least to me is uh, 
you know, oil at the end of the day has become beyond strictly a physical market and a very deep physical market and large fungible market across the globe is that it's still one of the most important, if not the most important kind of financialized commodity markets out there. It's a financial asset. And as a result of that, it has some of the features uh, cyclical features that make it attractive during these types of shifts in uh, in the paper market and the financial environment, and you've seen that pretty quickly happen on the on the commodity side, and as you said, also uh, uh, on the on the on the equity side, we've seen that reflation play out. Part of it is hopeful. It's always this hope that. We, when the, the worse the crisis is, so basically that's the that's the the kind of blessing of the curse uh, and the curse of the oil market, which is the deeper the crisis is, the more optimistic you are. Uh, markets become that eventually the the other side of it is going to be very constructive. I think that's where some of the changes that have happened in the oil market over the past few years are interesting to think about because the premise behind that thinking historically has always been that it's a cyclical market and eventually you'll come back to scarcity of supply and you need to incentivize more supply from more expensive places, which will justify higher prices, et cetera, et cetera. So structurally, oversupply is temporary, scarcity is permanent. Once shale came into the equation, once peak demand became a part of the conversation, a lot of that, a lot of those elements, as you think about oil beyond the next two years, have changed. And the, the interesting part is, from a financial standpoint, what we've seen over the past few months is, in, is a sign of that hasn't really kind of matched or uh, that shift that we've seen from a from a physical and structural standpoint. So it's interesting to think about, at least to me, at what point does that reckoning happen is how many of these false restarts where markets get excited hope for that big super cycle that doesn't play out the way they expect supply response how many of these do you have to go through before you start to have a reckoning of perhaps this whole cyclical narrative just isn't holding uh, anymore so i mean l looking forward are, are we expecting some degree of calmness is there some expectations of, I guess, range-bound prices that operators can kind of make decisions with some level of confidence, or are we expecting volatility? I mean, in the next couple of years, we do expect some, some at least based in our in our base case forecast, we do expect some level of stability here to, st to in this 55 to 65 dollars a barrel price range. I think where in that price range you end up will ultimately depend on some of the things we talked about earlier, how fast Iran comes back, how much the US responds, uh, and how Saudi Arabia can manage the physical market and manage its relationship with Russia and the OPEC plus group. So a lot of these supply side factors will determine on what end of that band you're on. But you have transitioned, I think, pretty steadily here. As demand recovers, you should sustainably be out out of that post-COVID band that we were stuck in for most of last year, which was in the mid to low 40s and into that higher price range. I think the biggest debate now in the market is whether that 60 to 65 upper end progressively becomes 70 plus as you get into the medium term 2023 onwards. Are you heading into a structural tightening path or a super cycle type environment as you as you look into the medium term i think we at least on our side we still feel that it's very premature to be calling for it i think the elements that i was referring to a minute ago on the reactivity of supply and the slowdown in demand are still big drags on that super cycle narrative to materialize as you mean reactivity that would be the reactivity based on existing 
projects and or tight oil because exploration is more or less correct so if you think about the cap i mean obviously you can't deny that the, the exploration portion of the enp if you want capex that's getting cut very heavily is where a lot of the deepest cuts are happening i think hunting for new resources at the frontier is that much lower rate than it has been at any time in the recent past. I think the the problem, the, well, not the problem for the market, but from a cyclical standpoint, if you think about from a super cycle discussion, you're not short resources. So unlike where you were in the early 2000s, in the early 2000s, you were coming into that decade with accelerating demand and a lack of resources in the cupboard. So you had to incentivize companies to go out further afield, either at the technological frontier, frontier uh, you know, shale, deep water, ultra deep water, or, or, or places like the Arctic or pre-salt, et cetera, to find new resources. We're not in that type of environment from a supply side, right? I mean, we have enough resources uh, in the US, we have a, on the onshore side, we know where the wells are, where the plays are. Obviously, we have a, we have a capital allocation and capital cash balancing issue at how to develop these resources effectively, but you don't have a lack of molecules in the US. And in the global side, you have a lot of projects still on the drawing board that are pretty far along that can be sanctioned in the next few years. The vast majority of them break even below $60 a barrel Brent. It's now the exception rather than the rule that breaks even above that level. So it's really less a question about economics or resource as much as a question about company behavior. And that's where it gets a lot trickier. It's how these companies, these operators, be it on the U.S. side, behave in terms of revenues versus uh, returns versus growth. And on the international side, in terms of portfolio decisions, you know, do you sanction these 10 projects or do you sanction five projects and the, the cash that you were going to devote to those extra five projects go to power or renewables or dividends, whatever it is. So I think that's going to be where a lot of the discussion is going to happen in the next few years, not as much on do we have the resources to meet the demand need, but more how does do companies deal with the carbon constraint from an from a peak demand and from an energy transition standpoint and the capital constraint from a shareholder pressure monetized now we don't want you to be investing in 15-year projects uh, we'd rather you give us back the money now i think those are the two big big challenges for companies as they think about the next few years but in terms of projects and and u.s supply i think the subsurface is there it's just a matter of will the companies develop it and to bring it back to the talk about a super, a super cycle a bit earlier what i meant by reactivity of u.s is and brienne you know this well as we've talked about it quite a few times in the past few weeks as prices increase the trade-off in the u.s becomes a lot easier for companies so whereas in the mid-50s there is a real trade-off between growing production and returning cash to shareholders, as you get into the $65, $70 range, it becomes a lot easier for companies to do both. And by do both, it's easy to slip from instead of returning 30% to shareholders, I'll return 20% to shareholders. And instead of growing 500,000 barrels a day a year, the US will grow a million one. And as we model the US, it's very easy for that shift to happen with relatively small increments in prices just because that's how sensitive the system is overall and how magnified small increments in prices become in terms of incremental cash flow so as prices rise we think that elasticity of u.s supply is lower than it was you know in 2016 17 18 but it's still there and that's still the structural drag i think on prices as you come out of this uh post-covid you know period in 2021 and 2022 you're right. And it's definitely there above $60. I mean, it, it, the definitely not there, you know, 
between 45 and 55, but definitely as you rise above $60. So it reinforces what you're saying there about re be really being range bound. What I find interesting if we talk about, like, like if, let's, and maybe this is, you know, uh, well, it's not philosophical, but it's it's headed in that direction. So prep yourself, guys. <laughs> if uh, So if we think though about where oil markets are going, if I'm, if I'm, Seeing things such as a range bound uh, because of physical, the physical nature of the market or what we're seeing in the physical side of the market, that things are pretty range bound. Well, that's great for the physical market, right? It allows for good investment or the investment that needs to happen. We can all live in this range bound. But let's be honest, paper markets don't love range bound, right? That, yeah. Well, they, they tend to like volatility, right? Um, and then we have this against the backdrop of the general migration out of oil and gas i mean are we are we potentially going to move into a world where oil liquidity goes down relative to where we are right now or are we just so liquid that even a slight pullback in that isn't isn't making an impact i think it's a great question i don't i mean we haven't seen it obviously even the past six years which have been pretty bad if you look at it on a price chart i mean it's you've had the volatility so volatility will keep some speculative appetite in there. I think in terms of overall paper markets interest, I don't think all, all parts of the paper market behave or want the same thing. There's a significant part of the paper market investment or exposure in oil currently that's made up of entities that are in oil, not because they care necessarily about oil itself, but because they see correlations between oil and other financial markets, be it currencies, uh, gold, other commodities is it's used as a hedge it's used as a hedge against currency for specific countries that are big producers of oil etc cetera, etc cetera. in that environment it's uh, some range bound trading could be could be helpful in terms of does it reverse does it become boring or not you know not attractive as a long term investment i think it's interesting because I, the way i think about it always is we think about oil financialization as a mid 2000s really phenomenon early 2000s but if you think about it i mean a lot of or the benchmarks the 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 paper markets for both brent and wti were established much earlier than that it was in the late 80s early 90s but for a decade between you know late late 80s and early 2000s really went nowhere you didn't have a lot of attention a lot of money flowing in the reason was you were stuck in a oversupplied or structurally overcapacity oil market for, for a decade, and it just didn't attract a lot of money into it. What really acted as the catalyst on the upside was that whole mid-2000 super cycle narrative and that long-term belief I was talking about earlier that you're scarce and eventually prices will start rising because there's this low elasticity of, of supply and a high elasticity of demand to economic growth. So if economic growth is higher, you'll demand more oil. Supply can't respond fast enough, which will require more and more supply from further, further away and more expensive uh, barrels in turn justifying higher oil prices. I think that whole physical dynamic that's behind the scarcity narrative and the financialization narrative behind oil and its and its correlation effectively to a lot of the macro indicators to which it's correlated is changing. I don't know how long it will take for that to permeate into psychology and behavior of diversified investors that don't care about oil for oil's sake or short-term prices sake, but I think it is a risk. The reason why I'm also skeptical of that really happening in a big way is once these mar we haven't seen definancialization at a scale we're talking about here really ever i mean it's very difficult to to reverse course liquidity breeds liquidity so the fact that a lot of people are in oil will continue to make it a viable uh, currency and and risk on asset so it's hard to see 
just how, what would be the the trigger i think some triggers can be if you do have a liquidity issue similar to what we had in the wti market last year where you do have that type of breakdown that shakes the market's faith faith in the ability of the benchmark to be stable as a long-term investment i think that's that's the type of thing that can affect interest in in investing in it but i think outside of that it's hard it's really hard to move so, uh, this bigger market over over a short period of time it's going to take a long time but i think if you, if you do enter this peak demand environment in the longer term there is a risk that open interest progressively unwinds and unwinds and you're left with a smaller market overall it's just hard to see how long it's going to take well, I think, I mean, you talk about the early 2000s. One of the big differences between then and now is, you know, the rise of China was growing so fast and demand associated with it, Yeah, which has, you know, that that's beginning to plateau or not rising as fast, at least. And there's a whole new, you know, vehicle fleet that China and others are relying on. So, so it's it's hard to look back at that as a you know, potentially a fair analog for where we are today, I would think. Exactly. I mean, and that's a big part of our argument why kind of any comparisons to the super cycle of the mid-2000s is a bit misplaced. Even if you have one aspect which is similar, which is the loss of investment because of low, uh, sustained low prices for five, six years, eventually coming back to haunt you on the supply side where it tightens the market. I think the demand side of the equation is dramatically different. The two things I would say that are dramatically different are the demand side. You mentioned China accelerating. Obviously, the global demand global demand was accelerated on, on an annual basis versus the prior decade. So if you think about the 2000s, oil demand was growing around a million and a half barrels a day a year versus a million barrels a day a year on average in the 90s. So not just is demand growing at a healthy rate, but it's also accelerating. You had obviously the, the whole psychological elements around peak oil and, and, and supply scarcity. But if you look at demand over the next couple of decades, I mean, we can debate, and I don't know, I can't remember if we discussed this last time I was on, but you can debate as long as you want where peak demand ends up being, if it's 2027 or 2032 or 2025. But I think everyone can agree to a large extent that the rate of growth over the next two decades is going to be much slower than it was over the past two decades. So every year you're going to need less and less oil to be on to less and less supply to meet the incremental demand because the rate of demand growth is slowing. I think that's that treadmill in the market is the dimension that gets lost of it in the whole which year does demand peak discussion. The other difference between now and the 2000s, which is important also to remember, is beyond just the rate of demand growth is... Uh, well, there's one in the... I mean, there, there's a big difference. In 2000, there was remarkable instability in Iraq and other Middle East countries that, that has somewhat uh, stabilized. To some extent, but geopolitical risk is goes hand in hand with the scarcity perception. It's, it's, it's psychology that amplifies it. So if you have supply fears, geopolitics amplifies it in a big way because you have this conviction that we're short supply and this, the, the base load supply that you're assuming in the market is, is volatile. If you think about where we are now, you had the attack on Upcake last year. You had Iran entirely exit the market in, uh, between mid-2018 under the sanctions, Venezuela collapse. Libya collapse. A lot of these factors have gone through without necessarily causing what probably in the 2000s would have caused a 10, 15, 20 dollar yeah. spike uh, have gone through unnoticed. And that's because psychologically you've you've the market has transitioned to this notion of the resource is there. You don't need to uh, 
just to have prices significantly higher in order to unlock that that supply from somewhere else. And I think I that's, think that's I think that's the big difference, right? Because isn't the difference between the early thousands, thousands? I would argue that in order to bring on incremental supply back then, you thought you were having to bring on a large oil sands project or have big exploration yeah. discovery, whereas now you've got an onshore U.S shale supply source that earlier in the conversation we talked about is perpetually being told to rein it in, right? So, I, you know, I guess when I think of mid-2000s era type there, well, now we're talking whether what, you know, as you said, you can argue which day, which year is peak demand, but I mean, it's it's on the horizon. And then you've got a totally shifted supply narrative in the sense that um, we don't need to go out there and, and have the giant discovery. Yeah, and spend those dollars. So uh, you know, it, it it's very hard, I think, to make the comparisons back to that. So, so back to what you were asking earlier. That if you're thinking about it from a paper market standpoint, what's the long-term investment thesis? If you're not trading oil for oil's sake on a short-term basis, what's the long-term investment thesis on the commodity side? The equity side is a completely different story. Some companies might have a value proposition where a stable oil price in a specific range creates the conditions where they can return money on a, cons on a consistent basis to shareholders and attract capital. So I think the equity side is going to be very specific to what the companies are doing. But from a commodity standpoint, I think if you lose that conviction that structurally on a long-term basis you're in a rising price environment, uh, I think that's where you can lose the, some of that speculative interest. And it's become such a big part of the market and the financialization of oil has become such a big part of how oil price formation happens. I think that's where it can start to shift in pretty major ways. But the problem is, again, going back to what I was talking about earlier, how long it takes for that to permeate, because we've seen it time and time again, optimism, you know, hope springs eternal. There's always the next. So now is going to be this. Five, seven years from now is going to be sweet spot exhaustion in the US. We haven't explored anywhere. Uh, the Permian can't grow anymore, uh, even though demand is plateauing. No one has discovered anything. Everyone is investing in offshore or wind. Or regulatory hurdles are always. Or regulatory hurdles, yeah. or something happens in Saudi Arabia and suddenly your 10 million barrels a day that you were taking for granted are no longer reliable sources of supply in the market. Whatever it is, things can happen fast to change that dimension. But it's going to be the further out you go from the 2014 crash, which is really when I think about it as the start of this phenomenon, uh, to 2018. I think is the point where psychology really shifted in a major way because it's the point where you had that hope of a sustained recovery and the U.S. grew two million barrels a day on prices that were, you know, paltry by comparison. We're at in the mid 50s or low 50s even for WTI, and you had two million barrels a day in a year of growth in the U.S. So I think 2018 was when that psychology shifted. Of if prices go up, this system is now big enough and deep enough that it can rapidly overwhelm whatever uh, physical market condition you have. And I think as you go through the next decade, there's going to be more and more of that. But the longer it goes on, the more it's going to be brought into question for a lot of the, the, the diversified investor base of, you know, why am I in here? Uh, well, what I mean, as, as we're thinking about, you know, the next 12 months or something that the rest of the calendar year, the next 11 months, you know, that there's, you know, sounds like an expectation of, of relative calmness, I think. Dan, you're going to put a paper or something in the Wall Street Journal about uh, Virus Alley, 
um, in yeah. terms of kind of a range bound. But ours alley, by the way, sounds like a very strange street to be walking down, just <laughs> for what it's worth. Uh, but if we're in some sort of range bound virus alley, what what is there any sort of signpost or catalyst that you're watching that that's going to take us out of virus alley and onto kind of easy street or some other street that we don't want to be on? I mean, we want to be on. You don't, really don't want to be on Virus Alley or any, <laughs> any, any offshoot on any any alley linked to, to Virus Alley. None of those streets sound good. <laughs> None of those are good. But I mean, the, the signposts are pretty clear at this stage. It's really going to be a matter of of, of countries lifting uh, restrictions. And the only way that happens is by vaccination rates getting to critical mass in, in, in different countries around the world and countries becoming comfortable enough to lift most of the restrictions they have currently on life as as we know it. I think it's going to take a while. I mean, our expectation still is that it's going to take a, it's going to be a process, but we still see that by July, August of this year, you should start to see 50, 60, 70% of the world normalizing a bit and helping demand recover. So I think that's going to be the big signposts. Obviously, the problem with anticipation is that's still five, six months away. So for the market now, we've, we've rushed to this recovery world but you still have to sit through the next five months and watch the news flow which hasn't been great obviously you have these rising cases demand still not great new variants etc cetera, etc cetera. that's when some of these kind of that, that anticipation can be shaken because it can start to seem you know further and further away so i think once you get to that demand recovery it, it's gonna you're gonna be probably want a more sustainable path away from virus alley but until you until you get demand really getting back close to normal i think markets are going to have to remain jittery and i guess rather than watching that news flow then give yourself a break and watch the super bowl next weekend <laughs> Do that. um <laughs> nice minus the budweiser yeah you think that i'm sponsored i am not um to be honest i could <laughs> i could really care less but as i pointed out earlier i don't really have anything more to talk about <laughs> well, on, on the plus, there's nothing else happening. On the plus to the winner, the Tampa's only like an hour and a half or something from Orlando. And so remember Joe Montana with his famous plug of I'm going to Disney World? <laughs> Somebody you know, could actually go. You, you could just get in the car and be there Maybe by the end of the Tom day. Tom Brady will rent out the park for his family. Good. <laughs> and then um, they can go enjoy Disney World no, uh, in, in a very stuff. socially distanced, enjoyable manner. We, we will wait to see yeah. if that's what happens. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thanks again, Kareem, for joining us. As always, it is a sure. pleasure. And you uh, gave us plenty to think about. And, of course, you'll be back. How, how can we thanks for having me without you? Yeah, thanks. Well, let's regroup. We'll regroup probably we can always regroup later in the spring to let us to, to see if that if we're still in Virus Alley or... Uh... <laughs> Or, or we made it out. If we're still with that, if we're still with Dan Jurgen in, in Virus Alley. Or not. <laughs> oh dear! All right, it's a date, Kareem. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks, um, thanks for having me. And thank everybody for joining us on this episode. Speak soon. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com/energyblog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. 
To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.